sometimes you have to be careful when you get up. You might get taken out. It's like football. You don't know who's going to come up and take you out from behind you. So we're turning to the book of Esther this next few sessions. The book of Esther. Let's, uh, let's open with a word of prayer, though. Father God, we know how magnificent your name is in all the earth, and we praise you for it. Lord, we live in a world that is shrouded with confusion, with um, nepotism, and all forms of just bad leadership. Lord, we see a, a world full of tragedy, where evil men and women do evil things to others, and wickedness pervades the air that we breathe. God, I I pray today that you would make yourself known to us and clear to us as we, we study this book of Esther that makes it so clear that you are here, that you are with us, even when you seem absent at times. Father, I pray for those in attendance today that they would uh, be encouraged by your word today, that you would strengthen their hearts for the week ahead that you would strengthen their minds, that they would study this text, and they would grow in the knowledge of you. Father, I pray that they would experience you in this text like I've experienced you over the last two weeks as I've been studying through this book. Father, I pray for your guidance and your wisdom today, Lord. I want to lift up the churches in the area, the gospel-preaching churches in our area, that they would overflow in abundance with the joy of the Lord to those who come. Father, we pray for this community. Sierra Vista is a dark and lonely place at times, and the people of Sierra Vista desperately need you. They need the word of the living God. Lord, help us to be a vessel in order to accomplish that uh, for such a time as this, as we see in Esther. Lord, be with us and guide us in this. In your name, we all pray, and all God's people said, amen. In the military, there's this term called fog of war. I wonder if you've heard about it. Fog of war. The fog of war. Now, I don't know where it came from. I'm assuming it was back in the day when they would shoot muskets and all the gunpowder would puff up in front of your face and you couldn't see what was going on. And so if you were a line troop and you didn't have a horse to sit on or a mountain to, to watch from, you were, your, the battlefield was obscured. And you had to rely on the orders that were given to you. And today, we have a similar situation in combat, right? When you're in the midst of combat, there's almost a, a psychological or mental effect where you're so focused on the battle, you don't know really what's going on around you. You don't know if the battle is being won or lost. And so, the, it's so important to obey the orders of your commander or your first sergeant, your lieutenant, whoever is running the talk or the, the tactical command center and the one who's in the in the rear taking in the reports and writing down what's going on. Someone who has a, a bigger view than you do. And you have to obey and listen even if you don't know if it's going to be right or wrong. You don't know exactly what's going on. Because the fog of war is that your vision is obscured. And I was thinking about that this week. And my goodness... Don't we feel like we're in the fog of war in, in our lives today? We don't, I don't understand why people get cancer. I don't understand why people get sick or old or 
get grumpy or are rude to me at the checkout line or the gas prices go up ridiculous amounts or the president makes weird decisions or someone says something that's just bizarre. I don't understand why this happens. I guess that's not really true. I understand why it happens, but I don't understand why it's happening now to me, right? And I think we all kind of feel that way. Why is this happening, and where is God in this event? Now, what's interesting about the book of Esther is we have a similar situation. We have the people of Israel who are um, post-exile. So I'm going to give us a lot of background because Esther requires some background. But one thing I want you to notice is that Esther never mentions God. There is zero mention of God in Esther. This is one of only two books in the entire Bible that does not mention the name of God. Song of Solomon is the other one, if you're wondering. This is also one of two books that is named after a woman, Esther and Ruth. And so as we, we, we study this text, we say, well, why would God include a book that doesn't even have his name in it? Because it's all about God. The whole book is about God. And it's done in a masterful way. It's a, it's a piece of literary genius. The one who wrote this is a master at sarcasm and irony and building a story. Because this is a story, um, a drama, if you will. It could be a play. And it's phenomenal. But it's also very, very true. And so, as we begin to read this, this, uh, this passage, you're going to find that it's written around the 4th century B.C. It's set during the reign of this king named Ahasuerus. I studied that really hard. I practiced it for two weeks. That's why I was sick last week, so I wouldn't have to say that. Ahasuerus, right? And really, the Ahasuerus is the Aramaic translation for Xerxes. This is King Xerxes. Have you heard of that name before in your, in your school in history? Yeah, Xerxes. So this is the, the King Xerxes who ruled between 485 and 465 BC. And it's located in Persia, which is also modern day Iran. And Susa is where his, his fortress is. Now, we have a lot of information about Xerxes. In fact, there's a historian, a Greek historian named Her. Herodotus, and in his book, History of the Persian Wars, he tells us the character of Xerxes. Are you ready for this, guys? He says, Xerxes is an ill-tempered, impatient monarch with a wandering eye for women. I think this sums up Xerxes pretty well as we read through this passage. Ill-tempered womanizer. This is Xerxes. And so we have a lot of information about him. So what happened is the Babylonians, they conquered the Israelites and they took them out into captivity, right? They exiled them. So we have the exilic period. Well, that's around the 500, 600s, 500s BC. Then the Babylonians were conquered by the Persians. And the Persians came in and King Cyrus was the Persian who conquered. And what he did is he did something very smart. He said, you know, you guys that were taken away by the Babylonians, you may go home. Go back to your home country, but you are going to be sub um, under, us, uh, under us. You're going to be um, part of our, you'll be a vassal state. So you'll belong to us. 
And so a lot of the people of Israel, Israel returned. We have Ezra and Nehemiah that talk about going back and rebuilding the temple. And the temple was rebuilt, but it wasn't anything like it was under Solomon. And it really wasn't all that great. And also, the presence of the Lord did not return to the temple. And so you have uh, some people who have returned, but many of the Israelites, the Jews, remained abroad. They remained in the land that they were because many of them got jobs and made money and had homes and property, and so they stayed abroad. And so this is an account about all the Jews, but ultimately it's really talking a lot about some Jews who remained in the Persian area, um, though the whole land belonged to Persia. So King Cyrus returned these people to their homeland, and then what happens to a people who have been conquered? Well, that's what we're going to see today. This is showing us a little bit about the remnant and some things at jeopardy. Because what you see is there are people who hate the Jews. And this is not unusual that people hate Jews. In fact, from the very beginning, the serpent is seeking ways to destroy the seed, the seed that was promised to Eve, the seed that was promised to Abraham. And Abraham's seed is at jeopardy here because there's a malicious villain in this story. And he wants to kill off the Jews. Satan is using the wicked people of the world to destroy the people of God. But he doesn't do that. And so this book has been an encouragement to me. Uh, when I watch the news, I don't hear God's name being mentioned. I don't know about you, unless it's in a blasphemous way. I don't have secret pastor glasses where I watch the news and see what God is going to do. Instead, we see God moving and shaping events, even though we don't know exactly what's going to happen. And that's the same thing with this story. And where God seems most absent, He is most present. That's what I want you to learn from this chapter in Esther, is that when God seems most absent, I mean, we don't hear His name anywhere in this book, but when he seems most absent, he is most present. So let's look at the setting of Esther. Let's see what is going on. So verses 1 through 9, we begin to get the background. So verse 1 says, These events took place during the days of Ahasuerus, who ruled 127 provinces from India to Cush. In those days, King Ahasuerus reigned from his royal throne in the fortress of Susa. He held a feast in the third year of his reign for all his officials and staff, the army of Persia and Media, the nobles, and the officials from the provinces. He displayed the glorious wealth of his kingdom and the magnificent splendor of his greatness for a total of 180 days. This dude partied for six months. At the end of this time, the king held a week-long banquet in the garden courtyard of the royal palace for all the people, from the greatest to the least, who were present in the fortress of Susa. White and blue linens hangings were fastened with fine white and purple linen cords to silver rods on marble columns. Gold and silver couches were arranged on a mosaic pavement of red feldspar, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. 
drinks were served in an array of gold goblets, each with a different design. Royal wine flowed freely according to the king's bounty. The drinking was according to royal decree. There are no restrictions. The king had ordered every wine steward in his household to serve whatever each person wanted. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women of King Ahasuerus' palace. Doesn't that sound quite excessive? I mean, that sounds ridiculous. In fact, I would say that the, the writer of Esther is making a point. Now, we know King Ahasuerus is making a point. Xerxes has a point that he's making. I am the great king of Persia. Uh, worship me, bow to me. And so we have these three feasts that are being described, and the wealth is beginning to just be gross. I mean, look how fancy his stuff is. Look how much, how vast his rulership is. He rules from India to Cush, to essentially to Egypt, from India through Egypt. I mean, that's a vast amount of area. Not only that, he has his fortress in Susa. It's, it's one of those impenetrable fortresses that you just can't tear down. And he begins to talk about his vast power and how much he rules. He reigns. And so what he did is he began to have these feasts. So one through four, we have the first feast. And he spends 180 days showing off. He's taking people all around. Look at all my land. Look at all my property. Look at all my women. Look at all my drinks. Look at all my stuff. And he takes everybody around. So this is about the third year of his reign. He just started becoming the king. And so he's showing it off to show people how powerful he is. And the author doesn't hold anything in reserve. In verse 4, it says, He displayed the glorious wealth of his kingdom and magnificent splendor of his greatness. Do you hear the um, adjectives that are describing what is going on here? And he did it for 180 days. Six months of party time. Six months of, of eating good food. So my wife and I, we went on a cruise for our, our 10-year anniversary since we never did a honeymoon. And so we said, we'll, we'll go on this cruise. And he had good food every single Buffets of food, just upon food. Man, I, I don't know how long the, the trip was, like four days, five days. But man, I was so stuffed. They had to roll me out of that thing. Like I couldn't even walk out after that. Right? Think about six months of potluck Sundays. I mean, six months of just nonstop eating and partying and drinking. And then five through eight, we have the second feast. And this is another extravagant display. So at the end of this time, the king held a week-long banquet. So six months wasn't enough. He had to hold another one that was a particular one for a week in the royal palace. And it describes the royal palace with these blue linen hangings and fine white and purple linen cords, the silver rods on marble columns, gold and silver couches. That sounds uncomfortable. Gold, right? But that's what he's doing. He's showing off his wealth. It's not really practical, right? These are not practical things. Like you don't go into someone's house and say, oh, that's a practical golden couch you have there. No, you're like, oh, you're really rich. you got a gold couch and silver couches and these, these finely ornate things. In fact, the cups that you're drinking out of is gold. No red solo cups for you. It's gold cups. This is a high-class party. But not only that, each cup was engraved and designed beautifully for this whole group of people. 
And not only that, there was a royal decree. He made a law to drink as much as you want. He made a law in order to force this debauchery, this drinking, this extravagant display, the second feast for the people in Susa. No restrictions on the drinking and serve whatever the person wanted. And then verse 9. Man, I love verse 9. I hope you love it as much as I do. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women of King Ahasuerus' palace. Do you see the contrast? Do you see the contrast between 180 days and intricate cups and da-da-da-da-da-da-da? And then uh, the queen gave a little feast too for the ladies. All right, so this is like the irony of this all. You see the, the, the ridiculousness of the king. Now, it's not condemning her or giving her props. It's just writing out a, just notice. Notice the comparison. The king's rich and he got everything he wants, and the queen has a little party. Different tone, short to the point. So what is the point of all this? Well, living in exile or post-exile, the Jewish people had to come to grips with their inability and their lack of control. When the, the, the people of Israel had their own land, they had their own country, they had some agency, some free agency to do what they wanted. But when you belong to another country, you don't have a lot of freedoms. In fact, you're stuck with harmful and toxic leaders. They had no control. Compared to the king of Persia, the post-exile people of Israel were minuscule and small. They were nobodies compared to this king right here. Nobodies. I mean, this king had 127 provinces from India to Cush. I mean, he's powerful. You know, as believers in Jesus Christ, increasingly, I think in this country, we were becoming less and less liked. I think we were being called intolerant. I think we were being called harmful, toxic even, and a threat to human flourishing. I don't know if you've watched the news lately, but that is the view that many people in this country have of Christians. More and more, what you are is a threat to the status quo because you don't approve and celebrate everything that the world wants you to approve and celebrate. And so in this country, I think more and more we're going to see ourselves as exiles. I think more and more you're going to see that we are living as exiles in a land that is way more powerful than us. Now, we don't like to hear that as Americans. And I'm not trying to be alarmist. I just want to observe. I just want to observe what is going on. And it shouldn't surprise us, but it should sober us. We should become more sober. And I think that's what Esther, um, the book of Esther is doing. It begins to sober the people of Israel as to their position. Yet we, as Christians, as believers, have hope because God is in control. All things are working together according to the counsel of His will. From the very beginning, God has a plan, even bringing about evil for good. Well, what's the greatest evidence of that? It's the cross. The cross of Jesus Christ is the greatest evidence of evil being brought about for good. While Esther does not mention God or control or anything about Yahweh, it's indisputable who's in charge here. So we have the setting. This is where it is all happening. Israel is post-exile. The king seems to be overly powerful with unlimited wealth and power. 
But not as all is as it seems. Something is going on under the surface. So verse 9 hints at it, doesn't it? By switching the feast and just talking a really brief thing about um, Vashti, Queen Vashti. But what we begin to see now is that evil and wicked people manipulate the laws of the land for their own avarice, for their own pride, for their own desires. And if you're a member of the Jewish people, this is scary because we've seen what a cruel man can do to a people group, haven't we? Not too long ago, Hitler decided to exterminate the Jews. And we see what it's like for one wicked man with a lot of control to make decisions that destroy lives for, for a lot of people. And we see that a similar thing as we go forward, but this is just hinting right now. So in 10 through 22, we see that the people in exile or post-exile are living in a land of manipulated laws. All his wealth accumulates to a point. I don't, want to, I don't want to ruin it. I can't ruin it yet. All right, let's look at verse 10. On the seventh day, when the king was feeling good from wine, Ahasuerus commanded, all right, here we go, Mehuman, Bitsta, Harbona, Bigtha, Abgitha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who personally served him. All right, let's stop there for just a second. The king's drunk. All right, that's what this is saying. He's drunk. He's feeling good. He's feeling tipsy. And he decides to tell seven eunuchs. Does, do I have to explain what a eunuch is? Anybody know what it? No, I'm not explaining it, Ryan. I'll tell you later. Right. The eunuchs are in charge of his harem, of his women. And so he goes and he calls all seven. How many people do you need to send a message? One. How many people did he call? Seven. All right, I just want to make sure that you see the irony here. This is ridiculous. And if you were a Jew listening to this story, you would laugh at these funny names, right? Because these are big old fat names that are just ridiculous. Bigtha is my favorite because it sounds like a really big man. All right, the seven eunuchs who personally served him to bring Queen Vashti before him with her royal crown. Now, there's some speculation that he said only her royal crown and so that she would show up naked to the party. That's what some people think. I just think he wanted to show off that she was the queen with her big fancy turban with all the jewels and everything like that um, and wanted to show up, show her off to his drunk friends. So to bring Queen Vashti before him with her royal crown, he wanted to show off her beauty to the people and that she was very beautiful. So he demands that his, his queen come to him in his drunkenness ridiculous eunuchs, seven of them must come here and deliver the message. He wants to show her off to her drunk friends. Man, that, that says love, right? That's nothing like love. Let me show all my drunk friends how beautiful my queen is. Right? How ridiculous. But this is the king. He wants to show her off. And then, verse 12, but queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command. That was delivered by his eunuchs. The king became furious and his anger burned within him. He is dishonored. He has been embarrassed. Anybody ever been embarrassed before? Man, you feel silly, right? You feel super silly because something didn't happen the way you expected it to. And he has all this vast wealth. 
He is he he can command 127 provinces, but he can't command his wife. Do you see how impotent this author is making this king look? This king is ridiculous. He has seven eunuchs to go tell his wife to show up. Man, ridiculous. And he makes it makes the king angry. Out of his pride, he is angry. So, what does this wise king do? I'm drunk. I'm going to go to bed. I, I embarrass myself. I've made my wife uh, embarrassed. Everybody's embarrassed. I'm just going to go to bed, sleep it off, and deal with it in the morning. No, he didn't do that. The king, verse 13, consulted the wise men who understood the times. He's like, let me get my witch doctors over here. The soothsayers. The, let me go read my horoscope. He's like, let me get the astrologists to tell me what to do. The wise men who understood the times. For it was his normal procedure to confer with experts in law and justice. He called his lawyer. He's drunk. Wife doesn't show up, so he calls his lawyers. Not just one, by the way. So these guys are experts in the law, but also in witchcraft. And he calls them, in verse 14, the most trusted ones, and here we go with the names again, Karshina, Sesthar, Adamatha, Tarshish, Mares, Marcina, and Memukin. Memukin, sorry. Didn't want to mispronounce that. They were the seven officials of Persia and Media who had personal access to the king and occupied the highest positions in the kingdom. Let me get my seven highest people to come and tell me how to handle my wife. This is going to go great, right? The king, in his anger, calls his consultants, his wise men, because he cannot even handle his household. And he begins to make this an affair of the state. This becomes a part of the government now. I can't handle my wife, so now I'm going to make a governmental decision to deal with her. I mean, think about how ridiculous this is. A prideful drunk decides that he's going to make his wife do what he wants by making some laws. So, we have the outline of the situation. Verse 16, they're the great wisdom. Listen to the great wisdom, please. Everyone, open your ears. Because Memukin said, in the presence of the king and his officials, let me tell you what's about to happen. I'm going to tell everybody. Queen Vashti, that wicked queen, has wronged not only the king, but all the officials. Oh, don't, don't worry, dear king, drunk as you are. You are not the only one embarrassed. We're all embarrassed. Not only the officials and the people. All the people are embarrassed. Every one of King Ahasuerus' provinces. All 127 from India to Kush. We're all embarrassed by this situation. Queen Vashti just offended everybody. Everyone's offended. Man, this guy's really laying it on. For the queen's actions will become public knowledge to all the women and cause them to despise their husbands. She's going to lead a rebellion of women and cause them to despise their husbands and say, King Ahasuerus ordered Queen Vashti brought before him and she did not come. Before this day is over, man, listen to this, this is amazing. Before this day is over, the noble women of Persia and Media who hear about the queen's act will say the same thing to all the king's officials, resulting in more contempt and fury. Your wife, your, your queen Vashti, she's a rebel. 
She sinned against everybody. She's, a, she's the problem. Man, how ridiculous. All right, but he likes to hear that, doesn't he? The whole kingdom is in jeopardy because you had a disagreement with your wife. Have you ever had a disagreement with someone and turned it into a catastrophic event? Because we do the same thing. You get into a fight with a neighbor and you say, man, I'm going to have to move. Let's start packing our stuff, wife. We can't get it, figure out what side the tree belongs. Right? We, be, we get catastrophic in our conflict. And that's what this king does. He gets ridiculous. And he calls his advisors. And instead of being honest with him, the advisor pushes on with a plan. Let's look at the proposal. Verse 19. If it meets the king's approval, of course it's going to meet the king's approval. He's already lathered him up with praise. He said he should personally issue a royal decree. Now let me tell you something about the Persian Empire. They loved law. They loved rules. And if the king issued a decree, you could not break it. It was set in stone, as you were. There was no changing the law. If the king said it and decreed it, it was law. The whole world had to obey. Can't change it. Irrevocable. So he needs to make an irrevocable law. Now, what kind of state of mind do you want someone who can make irrevocable laws? Probably not in a drunken state, fighting with his wife. But that's what he's going to say. Make a law. Make a decree. Let it be recorded in the law of the Persians and the Medes. The Medes and the Persians. So that it cannot be revoked. Vashti is not to enter King Ahasuerus' presence. All right, time out. Time out, man. She didn't even want to come to your presence. So you're going to make a law saying she can't come to your presence. That'll show her. I mean, look how ridiculous this is. That is what the author of Esther is trying to point out. This king is ridiculous. She cannot come into your presence, and a royal position is to be given to another woman who is more worthy than she. The decree the king issues will be heard throughout the vast kingdom. The whole kingdom needs to hear this. So all women will honor their husbands from the greatest to the least. That'll tell them. We'll make a law. You must obey your husband. You must respect him. That'll, that'll fix the problem. Let's go ahead and legislate a heart issue. That's what his proposal was. From Ethiopia or Cush, women will have to show their husband's honor because the queen made the king mad. And he's drunk. So let's listen to these new rules. Verse 21. The king and his counselors approved the proposal and he followed Mimikin's advice. No one pushed back on that. No one said, hey, let's give it a day. Let's just put it on ice for 24 hours. Let's just get sober for a minute and then think about it. No. They said, let's do this. That'll show these crazy women. We'll make them obey. The king and his counselors approved the proposal and he followed Mimikin's advice. Verse, or verse 22, he sent letters. All right, so I want to tell you something else about the Persians. They had the best postal system at the time. They had like the Pony Express. Um, they were able to communicate with vast uh, distances with their letters. They would have stables and have positions. They had a postal service. This is probably one of the, the, the highest achievements that they had at the time. So he's going to use his drunken decree using his best tools 
his law and his postal system to make sure that everybody hears this order. Best postal system at the time. All the royal provinces to each province in its own script. Man, not only that, he's going to have translators. They're going to translate it into the local language. Each ethnic group in its own language that every man... Now listen, this is the rule. This is the law. Here's the new law, guys. Think about this with me. Every man should be master of his own house and speak in the language of his own people. There's the rule. You got it, guys. You're the master of your house. And all the women said, Amen. No, they, they were like, What? I got to speak in your language, in your tongue, and you're the master of the house. So he made this ludicrous law. All the local languages, all the native language that the, the man has, he should speak it, and the women have to learn the language that the, of the husband. Whoever the husband is, the women have to learn that language. And they should live in a way where the man is the master of his home. Now, I want you to think about this for, from a, a modern-day perspective. What if, let's just say what if, this is not condemning any political leader, what if Biden's wife told him he was not allowed to eat chocolate ice cream? Let's just say that that was the rule. His wife said, no, honey, you have issues. Do not eat the chocolate ice cream. That's, not for, that's forbidden. And he gets mad. I'll show that woman. Every man is allowed to eat as much chocolate ice cream as he likes. And he makes an executive order and determines, it's irrevocable, that every man can eat as much chocolate ice cream as he wants. He signed it. It happens. Wives have to give their husbands ice cream whenever they want it. That's the new rule. Everybody good? We would all laugh, right? Because it's silly. It's ridiculous. But it's also very dangerous. It's very, very dangerous. Can you imagine living in a land where rules could be manipulated? Where a king can make decisions based on his own drunken choices? Well, it's not a big deal because I don't like ice cream. But what if it's, you can't drive your vehicle? What if it's something else that actually affects you? Right? And so we have the people of Israel living in a land where a king can get drunk, get upset by his wife, and make a law that is irrevocable. In fact, we see that one of his advisors comes to him and says, I want all the Jews to die, and I will give you money to make this happen. And he says, sure, sounds good. Make it happen. And the people of Israel are under threat of death. Because everyone is allowed to kill them without consequence. Because of these kind of laws. So what is being set up here in Esther is that the, the, the people of Israel, the Jewish people, are living in jeopardy. They are at risk of destruction. Now while this is comical, and even our example, our illustration of Biden and ice cream is comical, it's dangerous. It's dangerous when we have someone who can put everyone else at risk. And we live in a world just like that, don't we? The people in Washington make arbitrary decisions based on poll numbers. They consult the stars. They get their horoscope and they make decisions. And these decisions have lasting consequences to our well-being. And this would be fearful, wouldn't it? 
We could be really scared of this situation. But what Esther is teaching us is that God is in control. God is ensuring that Queen Vashti and her removal permits someone like Esther stepping into the gap in order to intervene when this later this guy comes and tries to manipulate the law. What we see is that one of his officials, who is a Jew, sitting outside thwarts an assassination attempt in order that later down the road he is honored and that other villain that we're going to learn about, Haman, is destroyed. God is orchestrating all of these things. So it doesn't matter how powerful the king looks. It doesn't matter how rich and wealthy or how strict the laws are. God will care for his people. You know, there's no guarantee of safety when we're led by buffoons with tender egos. I worked really hard on that sentence, so I just wanted to make sure you heard that. Right? It's startling. It's a startling place. And we have the similar reality now. And we can feel hopeless. But we go from the greater to the lesser. If God is governing the biggest things, He's also governing the smallest things. Right? When the doctor gives you a lot, or doesn't give you the time of day, and you feel attacked, the Lord is in control. When you open the news and gas goes up another dollar, and you don't know if you can make it to work. God is in control. He cares for His people. Can you trust Him in this? Can you trust Him when the world seems to be going mad? When out of an upset, laws are being made that are just not practical. We're already outlawing bazookas with AR-15 magazines or something. I don't know. It's always something weird that happens as a result of something else. Not thought through. Just like in the book of Esther, regardless of the vast excesses of wealth or manipulated laws, God is in control. In fact, God uses those situations to protect His people. He, pl he places the right woman on the throne to intervene for the lives of the Jewish people. And we're going to see that next week. It's going to be very interesting. I just want you to know the timeline matches up with King Xerxes going to Greece to fight and then coming back after losing, which is interesting. So the Battle of 300 at Thermopylae and all those, those different battles there, which are very fascinating, all that ties into this timeline. It's interesting to me to see how God uses Esther as a type that points to Christ. So before the exile, the biggest thing in Israel's history was the exodus, being saved from imprisonment in Egypt. Then they were all exiled. Then they were protected and saved and brought back. And we have all these types of people that point to salvation where a powerful enemy is oppressing the Jewish people. Same thing happens in when the Romans take over. And Jesus comes in an unexpected way, just like Esther comes in an unexpected way. Jesus, however, lives a perfectly obedient life and is crucified on the cross making this seemingly hopeless situation worse. But that's not the end of it. God's great plan since before the foundation of the world, and even now, is this. Look at, at Ephesians 1, or I'm going to read Ephesians 1, 20-23. He exercised this power in Christ by raising Him from the dead and seating Him at the right hand in the heavens, far above every ruler and authority, 
power and dominion and every title given, not only in this age, but also the one to come. And he subjected everything under his feet and appointed him as head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. Jesus is on his throne. And if you are a member of the church, Jesus is looking out for you. If you belong to the body, the the big body, what I mean is, do you belong to Jesus Christ, then you fall under the church heading. And what he is doing is he is protecting his people. He is on his throne. I, I think we can find great encouragement in this. Because we don't think about this when we watch the news, do we? We think about, oh, this guy is so powerful, or, or who... Uh, the world order or whatever the new world order has in mind is going to do this, or they're going to sink the economy, or they're going to do this, or they're going to make everybody get sick and then control their lives and put implants of bugs in our brains and, and all the stuff that people talk about, right? But God is in control. Jesus is on his throne for his people. If you don't know Jesus, I want you to not hesitate and come and talk to me. Please, uh, I'm going to spend some time in the back, and then there's some room here in the corner. Um, but come and talk to me if you do not know Jesus. If you are not finding encouragement in this, you, maybe you don't know Jesus. Maybe if maybe you need to be strengthened in that. So find rest here. So this is the challenge. I want you to share this hope with someone this week. This week, I want you to point to the book of Esther and say, listen, God's in control. It doesn't matter how many provinces this person owns. It doesn't matter how much money this guy has. If they are watching the, the news and they come to you and complain about the news and tell you how bad things are, share this nugget of truth with them. When God seems most absent, he is most present. When God seems most absent, he is most present. And that's some, a hope we can bank on and we can trust in. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Father, your word is truth, and we trust in the living word of the Almighty God. And you promise that you will protect your people, that we belong to you, and that we have salvation through no other name but Jesus Christ. Father, as we watch the world fall apart in various places, uh, we, we're actually surprised because it's been much worse in other places but that we have Jesus Christ on his throne, not to give us a, a more comfortable life or uh, a bigger bank account, but to build our trust in you spiritually, that we can grow in our faith and knowledge of you, which is eternal life, which is joy, which is happiness, which is holiness that leads to happiness. So, Father, I pray for everyone in this room that they would share the good news of Christ with their neighbors as they watch the news, as they see the wickedness of the world. Lord, help us to be ever faithful to trust in you. And we ask these things in the beautiful name of Christ, through the power of the Spirit, and all God's people said, Amen.